This podcast is brought to you by Sales Fuel Hire, a platform to help companies hire smarter and flag 13 toxic employee types. Measure job fit, sales tendencies and motivators, decision-making abilities and empathy levels, and make your next hire your best hire. Try it now on salesfuel.com slash hire and use promo code MANAGESMARTER for $50 off your first purchase. Welcome to the Manage Smarter Podcast with hosts C. Lee Smith and Audrey Strong. We're glad you're here for discussions on new ways to manage smarter, hire, develop and retain talent, improve results and propel team performance to new heights. This is the Manage Smarter Podcast. Our guest today is an expert in managing lots and lots of people and very complex organizations. And boy, has he got a lot of great experience in this area and a lot of other things too. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Manage Smarter Podcast. I'm Audrey Strong. I'm the Vice President of Communications here at Sales Fuel. And I'm Celie Smith. I'm the CEO of Sales Fuel. And yeah, even though we're going to be talking quite a bit about automotive dealerships today, uh, there's a lot of similarities between some of the complexities of multiple dealers, brands and dealerships and, and managing that with you know, maybe your company about managing different, different brands or, or different offices in different markets with different managers. And so uh, helping to make sense of that is Pat. So welcome to the show, Pat. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Lee. Thank you. Yeah. I well, want to dive, I want to, dive uh, in I, I want to share a little bit about Pat's oh, background. Yeah, let's do that. yeah. So Pat Norris is the senior vice president of Jim Doyle and associates having previously been on the other side of the table is an auto group managing partner. He experienced the power of the Jim Doyle philosophy of concentration and marketing focus. He's a marketing expert as well, everybody. Um, he's the managing partner of the Norris Auto Group. Uh, he's run a collection of five retail multi-brand, this is kind of what we're going to start getting into, multi-brand automobile dealerships and two motorsports stores as well. Mm. 16 years of success directly attributed to his ability to develop advertising strategies and cut through advertising noise in this increasingly fractured landscape and get the results. So, Pat, yes, go ahead, Lee. First question Thank out you. of the gate. <laughs> no, I, I couldn't wait to ask that question. So, <laughs> no, no I'm, what I'm really curious about is like you, you have the, the, these five stores and they all have, represent different brands with, with their own cult, brand cultures, if you will. Right. And, but at the same point in time, it's like you have, you have the, audio, the auto group you know, as its own company. What, when does one culture end as far as the store culture or, or the brand culture of the, uh, the make and model that, that, that they're selling and then the overall company or corporate culture began? Well, well, I think, Lee, what's important is you have to have the overall corporate culture in place uh, amongst all the dealerships. You know, there has to be some non-negotiables. In other words, you know, some of the non-negotiables were one that we would all treat each other with great respect, uh, not only inside the stores from management to um, you know, their employees, but also employees to their management team. And then the same thing amongst the group itself. You know, we were to treat each other, um, you know, with dignity and respect. That then interprets to treating our customers with dignity and, and respect. Uh, other non-negotiables from a corporate culture standpoint was transparency. You can't manage uh, what you can't measure. And, and you have to measure things accurately and transparently in order to make good sound uh, business decisions. You know, and again, also the other part of, you know, the overall corporate culture was to have fun. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, being in the car business, whether you're servicing or selling cars, I mean, it's not rocket science. We're not doing complex heart surgery. So let's have some fun at work and make it a great place to come. 
And I'm also curious about the, uh, the, the culture that might exist between the service and parts folks, which is becoming a really great revenue center for a lot of dealerships these days, and the folks that are actually out on the floor selling the cars. What's that like? Well, you know, it's, it's an interesting dynamic because it used to be like church and state. You know, the, the new car department slash sales department got all the accolades, got the trips, the awards, the cash pull envelopes. And your service department just kind of ground along every day and think about it. You know, anybody who comes into your service department is either unhappy because they have a problem or they're <laughs> inconvenienced even just to do basic maintenance. And so it's a whole different dynamic versus that client who walks into your showroom with, you know, the anticipation and excitement of potentially going away in a newer, newer car. However, that's changed a lot from a profitability standpoint. Uh, NADA, National Auto Dealer Association, just reported recently that for the first time in history, most new car uh, department, most new car sales departments were not profitable. You know, you're looking at an average markup, and that's from a dealer cost to window sticker of a little less than 6%. Uh, so it becomes increasingly more difficult to make a profit in a new car department. Therefore, it puts the pressure then on your pre-owned or used car department, and more specifically, your service and parts, and if they have a body shop, body shop. So if anything, you're sort of seeing the, the dynamic turn where the service department is getting the love and attention, the new equipment, the upgrades, uh, you know, the refacing that before it was just okay to have your technicians hidden behind the, you know, the curtain, so to speak. Interesting. So you had a collection of five multi-brand dealerships. Were they spread out geographically as well? I'm interested in hearing how you manage those and what your tips are for managers who have, <clears throat> are spread over, you know, different locations and need layers of delegating. Well, you know, that's a great question. And, and you know, what you have, first of all, they were, they were in about a 50-mile ring, uh, 55, 60-mile ring, and I can tell you some days driving those 50 miles felt like 5,000 miles of dealerships. <laughs> uh, you know, and the brands ranged from uh, entry level uh, tier three at the time, uh, Kia, uh, Suzuki, et cetera, Suzuki cars, uh, all the way up to uh, Cadillac and, and Buicks. We had a collection of mostly domestics, um, you know, Ford, GM, Chrysler stores, but we also had Hyundai, Kia. Um, Honda and again Suzuki cars, and I'll even admit I was a Daewoo dealer for a short period of oh, time. Wow! <laughs> yeah, but, but, you know, again, it really comes down to people. You have to have you know a leader inside the store that is that takes your culture, you know, your your uh, non-negotiables to heart, and then manages the ship accordingly. You know, my job was to manage you know about twelve to. 14 people overall between the office, service directors, general managers, sales managers to some respect. Um, and then, of course, it went down from there. But the real key is you got to have people that you trust and people that you'd have over to your house for dinner, we used to say. If I wouldn't have a, a manager over or an employee over to my house for dinner that night, I probably don't want them working for me. That's a good test. Good way of measuring yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So auto dealers seem to be like, uh, you know, undergoing a lot of change right now as well. And it's like, I mean, you, you, you can go buy a new Tesla online. There's not even a dealership. You just order it and, and, and they deliver it to you. You can go to CarMax for a used car and order everything right online. You know, go to Amazon, eBay, you name it, and, and, and just order your car there. Um, 
is the is the the power that a that an owner of a car dealer has is that changing at all? Are there are they are, are they slipping in relevance at all? You know, uh, no, I, I would say no, Lee, and I'll tell you why uh, for a couple reasons. Number one, you could buy a car online effectively from your dealer. You know, five, seven, eight years ago, mm-hmm. um, we all had the ability to, you know, for you to go online, uh, go to the what's called the VDP vehicle display pages. You know, pick out a car you're interested in, uh, get pricing if it already wasn't, you know, branded with a quote-unquote e-price, uh, do a form fill to get in a trade appraisal on your vehicle, do a form fill to get your credit application, and really the only thing you'd have to do, and really you wouldn't have to do that, is is drive the dealer to the dealership to turn your car and take the new one away, although the dealer, and I've done this many times, would simply come to your house and complete the transaction. The difference was, as dealers, we never really advertised that. It was just sort of one of those things that we put on our web pages and kept advertising traditionally, you know, price and payment and selection. Now, enter the Carvanas, Carvanas, pardon me, um, you know, the cars.com and some of the other third-party lead providers and third-party sellers such as a Carvana. And it's changed some of that dynamic. But there's the one thing that doesn't change is none of those third-party operators uh, operate service departments. Mm. And at ah. some point, your vehicle needs to be serviced. Uh, I was in a market not long ago that Carvana had just come to. And as I'm driving from the airport to my hotel, they must have had 20, 25 billboards along the route. This is Carvana. And, and the one that stuck out to me was Bully Mammoths, the Dodo Bird Car Dealers. Oh, my. In other words, like, you know, extinct, right? And I thought to myself, well, that's really interesting. Where are these people going to get their car service? You know, it's going to have to be at the car dealer if they want the warranty work done and the work to be covered. So I think dealers are, are, are more relevant, and I think dealers are now quicker to make those kind of decisions. How are they tackling things like millennials, for example, that, 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 you know, that, that's well advertised that, that, that the millennials are like they're not buying cars, they don't value own, car ownership like, like they used to, they'd much rather buy an Uber or a Lyft to get, get from place to place and that sort of thing. Is, 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 that a, is that real or is that myth? And if so, either way, it's like how are the dealerships dealing with that? Well, I, I'm going to I'm going to share with you that's probably more myth than reality from the simple standpoint that the car represents freedom in America. I mean, it's the ability for you to get in your car, you know, get on your horse and ride to the destination of your choosing without reliance on Lyft or Uber or mass transportation liability. Now, I just came from uh, New York City working with one of our partners there, and and of the staff, about oh, 20%, which were millennials, live downtown. And so, yeah, in an urban area like that with lots of, of uh, you know, shared transportation available, that's how they got around. But, but the rest all lived out in the suburbs, and about half of those, you know, took the, uh, the train or maybe even the sub in, but the others drove in every day. So that's in a very urban area and people that work. You get outside of that, and you've got, uh, you know, these millennials that are employed in, in suburbs, rural areas, you have to have a car uh, to get around. You know, I think how they think about buying a car is differently, uh, different than what it may have been in the past, how they consume information is different, and that's why dealers are smart enough to go after that uh, that particular generation with a lot of digital platform. That's where they're collecting their information, making decisions, a lot of community shared information, uh, but at the end of the day, they're still buying cars. 
That and was going to be my, my next question, which is when they're in the showroom, though, how do you counsel your managers to interact with them? Are there some different things going on? Yes, tons and tons and tons of information. One of the things that, that they'll do, in fact, many consumers do, but certainly the millennial group and the younger Gen Xers, is they do what they call showrooming, meaning they're in your showroom and they pull their smartphone out and they're shopping offers and opportunities at the competition while they're sitting in front of your salesperson in the showroom or as they're walking around the lot. Uh, tons and tons of information, tons of transparency. I can tell you, you know, if you're a dealer that is offering, you know, a dozen models or more, uh, that millennial walk into your showroom probably has more product information than your salesperson does on a specific wow. vehicle. So lots and lots of information and, and do not push them. Gone are the days of, you know, hey, you know what, uh, you know, that car you're looking at today will be gone tomorrow if you don't make a decision or that price is only good for today. That, that's all gone the way of the dodo bird. <laughs> Yeah, they don't take kindly to that, huh? They'll go, oh, okay, yeah, fine. All right, fine, no problem. Uh, see you later. Goodbye. Yeah, see, you, yeah. see you, buddy. <laughs> what about recruiting millennials then to actually come and work for you? You have to have a fun environment. You, you, you have to let them sort of, again, you, you set sort of the ground rules. Here's our processes, our proven processes. Let them bring their personality. Know they're going to sit at their desk and be on Facebook and Instagram and Pinterest, and they're going to be looking at their phones all day long. Know that, you know, they're going to operate with consumers in and around their age the same way. It just let them have some fun and let them be who they are. Just establish, the, again, I like the word non-negotiable, the non-negotiable processes. Okay. You know, we're going to offer a test drive. We're going to be transparent in our numbers. We're going to give them an intelligent way as to how we appraise their vehicle. We're going to give them fair pricing and finance options. And then let them make the decision. Interesting. You say that one of your other top skills and you'd like to share a little bit about for this podcast is prospecting expertise. For those in our audience that are sales managers, what are some of your top tips? For prospecting? Yes. Uh, for just general industry or business verticals? I don't know. Um, whatever you want to offer is oh, fine. Well, tips for prospecting. You know, one of the things I share what I'm doing now is, is I encourage sales managers and salespeople to use Google AdWords. Take a look in your market or in a geographically targeted area, you know, what people are searching for in terms of words. A case in point, a dentist that I met in New York City, how did the uh, sales manager ultimately get the appointment? It was because uh, they offered a specific laser called Solera that uh, worked on gums and, and cavities and so forth, but there was no need for anesthesia because it wasn't drilling and it was relatively painless. Point being, as I said, do a Google AdWords search um, as to uh, what people are searching in, in a three-mile, four-mile concentric ring around the, this dental practice, you know, tooth pain, uh, painless, cavities, gum disease, etc. What they found is in New York City that there was over 15,000 searches in that four-mile concentric ring uh, the previous month. And when they shared their information, the dentist said, you're not coming up anywhere. They're very eager to meet us, and they did, and we ended up being able to craft a great strategy for them. Yeah, so speaking of marketing, which is an area in which you have, have expertise, uh, I've noticed that I don't see nearly as many uh, car dealerships advertising on TV lately, but it's like whenever I'm on digital, I see them all the time. Is that just my imagination, or is that something that, that's really going on? No, you, you've seen a shift, Lee, in the last couple of years. Uh, you know, 
it, it's driven by two things. One, the manufacturers have moved a lot of their co-op reimbursement programs to digital platforms. Now that said, you know, targeted YouTube video, over-the-top video, connected TV video, all those things qualify under those quote-unquote uh, digital covenants. Um, so one, the manufacturers force that behavior. And two, you get your a monthly copy of Automotive News or you get your dealer magazine, you know, feed, and it's all about, you know, digital, digital, digital. It's the, the shiny new object. However, the reality of it is, is there is no search engine that creates demand. It only satisfies demand that already exists. So the importance of stimulating the market through traditional media, whether that's, you know, uh, high reach frequency schedules on television or even cable to some degree or radio um, is equally as important as it was 20 years ago. Something still has to say where to buy, what to buy, why to buy, and then drive these potential uh, buyers, consumers, into the dealer's footprint where they meet with them digitally. I like to tell dealers, if all you're doing is digital advertising, you're being very passive in your approach to the market. You're hoping uh, people will stumble upon you along the way versus stimulating the market through traditional advertising. I seem to notice that you know, when all of these family-owned dealerships, they get passed down to, to the next generation, that the, that the younger generation comes up and they want to do di things differently than the old man used to do it. So the old man was on television all the time and ran full-page newspaper ads. And I'm wondering if that also is what's leading to uh, the, the movement to, to more digital platforms. Well, there's, there's no question about that. In fact, you know, when I, I talk to a lot of PhDs, in the car business, PhD stands for Papa had a dealership. <laughs> so when I talk to a lot of these younger PhDs, they'll reference that what happens is they become a focus group of one. Uh, well, I don't really watch TV. Uh, so I'm online streaming Netflix or Hulu or Swing. And, you know, I'm looking at my various, you know, digital feeds. My, I'm on Instagram. So gosh, isn't everybody who buys a car there. But, but, the way to counsel them is the fact that, look, you know, the number one group with the most disposable income is your baby boomer. And today, uh, on January, this past January 1st, every baby boomer, the youngest baby boomer in America is 54 years old. And now that half have had birthdays, the youngest baby boomers in the country are 54, 55. So we start talking about the fact that you really want to leave out an audience, that 54, 55 plus audience, that one has the most money, still buys lots of cars, but also consumes a lot more traditional media than more digital media. And, you know, usually I get half of them to shake their head and turn around a little bit their thinking. This is fascinating. Well, if you're a wealth of information. Uh, JimDwell.com is your website. We'll wrap things up here. Patrick Norris 08 uh, is your Twitter, right? Correct. And Patrick Norris on LinkedIn, everybody. Um, this has been a very interesting conversation. I've learned a lot, Pat. Thank you, Audrey. Thank you, Lee. Much appreciated. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend or share it with a colleague. And, you know, uh, if you'd like to be on the show, visit ManageSmarter.com and fill out a guest request. So thank you all for listening. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend on iTunes, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also get more great information at salesfuel.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>